got a million dollars. Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk, and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. I'm very excited to bring you Eric Paul Rose of Pinnacle Product Innovation. Eric is the go-to guy when you have that million-dollar idea and you want to bring it to market. As you listen to this interview, as a small business person, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you will learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Eric. Hopefully, you'll laugh with us, too. Hot dog. It's a wonderful life. Welcome to Small BizCast, Eric. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Joel. Yeah. Tell me how you got started. Well, I got started way back when, at 14 years old, when my grandfather took me under wing and showed me how to rebuild a toaster. And when I was able to rebuild the toaster and bring new life to that product, I was hooked. I was fascinated and somehow figured I would be involved in engineering. And the toaster worked when you were done, I assume? Absolutely. It was uh, a few screws and uh, an emery board and, you know, the contacts had a fresh life and, and it was making toast. So I assume that you've been involved with products that have evolved to pretty complex items, correct? Sure, everything from, you know, simple pet products to digital video microscopes for kids. What's the bridge between toasters and video microscope for kids? I'm assuming there's a little bit of time in between that took place. <laughs> a lot of time. Um, well, so I ended up getting a product design engineering degree from Arizona State. And what I loved about the program was that it was one of the few programs in the country that offered an industrial design degree from an engineering college. I wasn't much of an artist, but product design is the marrying of art and classic mechanical engineering. And so I was able to learn how to sketch and draw and conceive and invent and prototype and all the manufacturing processes and fundamentals of engineering and get all that good stuff under my belt. And and then came to Los Angeles working in the medical device industry and started my career here. And been here ever since, since uh, 1980. So if I have a good idea, are you the guy I call first? Absolutely. So, well, I usually say that I'm uh, more efficient than a patent attorney, although I love patent attorneys. They bring me a lot of business and usually less expensive. So I recommend that I'm the guy to come to first. How many times a day do you get people saying to you, I thought about the widget before anybody else did? Definitely. I that? get that a lot. And I say, you know, it's not about the idea. It's about the execution. And that's the big challenge. That's what I tell people. Ideas are a diamond dozen. I know because I've had a million of them. I came up with the laser printer way before anybody else came up. With Definitely. That. I've been down that road myself a few times. Have you ever talked to an, an inventor who had a product that you thought was a poor idea only to find out later on it was a big hit after you passed on it? Not usually, no. no. Usually I look at some of these ideas. I think the worst was a portable, rechargeable shoe polishing device. Oh, I've got to get one of those. <laughs> Can I use it off my iPhone? <laughs> the, guy, the guy had already done the design, the development, the engineering, the tooling, and bought inventory from Asia that he had in his garage before he had done any market research at all. Wow. That's got to be what most people do, I assume, is they put the cart before the horse, right? They start to That's run. That's exactly them. right. And how About 70% of my clients coming in the door put the cart before the horse and don't do enough market research to justify the downstream engineering and patenting expense. That's crazy. Although I can see someone who's really enthusiastic about an idea that they believe that they need 
not listening to the noise. I always call it noise when you have a good idea and you start telling your friends and family and they start telling you all the reasons why it won't work. And I usually will try to you know, encourage them not to listen to the noise that there are speed bumps to any successful project. It's okay to know about the speed bumps. Navigating them is the trick. That's right. how, how does the average person know the difference between noise and someone who's just really being honest with them and telling them that it's a, it's a really bad idea? <laughs> well, I think all the ideas coming in should be treated equally for their potential. And it may be good, it may be bad, it may be indifferent, it may be a small idea, maybe a big idea. I've got a client who has an incredible idea and he's been sitting on it for too long. And I think it's a world-changing idea that's not that expensive, but he's still kind of hemming and hawing about it. But I've tried to kick him in the pants to get it going because it's one of the best ideas I've seen in many, many, many years. And it'll save people's lives and it'll be an affordable solution. Uh, but he's kind of slow on sitting on it. Uh, on the other hand, there's the portable shoe polishing device. <laughs> on the product that you think is a great idea that he's sitting on, is it not then your job, or at least do you find yourself wanting to put him with other people that are capable of taking it to the next step? I've offered to invest in the business, reduce my fees to get it going, to connect him with other people, and I can't get him off the dime. That must be frustrating. Oh my gosh, it's so incredibly frustrating because I know I've seen firsthand people who have caused major problems in their lives because they don't have this product. And it affects people's well-being, health, and in some cases, life. I, I envision a complete quirky uh, mad scientist type inventor with this, with this idea. Is that, yes. is that what, yes. what are the elements that make products successful? Do you, you, you have a formulation for that? I do. I found that over the years, there really is a great framework. Uh, and I've been teaching this to my students where I teach my clients. I've been guest lecturing on this all over the country. And I call it three keys to successful new products. And those three keys work like this at the high level. First, it's marketability. Is there really a business case there? Can you do enough market research to figure out how much anguish there is in the market? Is that a broad-based anguish? Uh, are there other products that maybe they're competitive or even just substitute products? Are people trying to hack together solutions because there isn't anything else out there? Uh, or maybe it's a very expensive solution or a laborious solution. So it's really understanding that anguish in the market, what people are willing to pay for a solution, Maybe there's some regulatory things that are going out there, that going on out there that are changing, you know, societal trends, technological trends, political trends, really looking at what's going on in the world. That's first and foremost. It can't just be because you and your mother love it, or your mother's seen it and she tells you she loves you and it's a great idea. It has to be broad-based so there really can be a business opportunity. So number one key is marketability. And marketability, I think, uh -huh. it's, I think that's fleeting, right? Something marketable today may not be marketable six months ago from now or six months ago. Timing well, is very, very critical, correct? It, it's, it's really great that you brought that up, Joel, because the truth is this incredible idea that a, a client of mine has, it's getting stale. And the problem is technology is moving past his invention and I believe that within 12 to 24 months, it likely will have passed him. 
And so he first came to me with this idea about 24 months ago. And I believe in another 24 months, it will be gone. Because somebody else will have solved it also or because? In a different way. I see. In a more advanced way, in a more convenient so, way. So this is a big enough problem that people are probably trying to solve as we speak. Mm -hmm. And I, I can see it. I see the trends of technology, the trends of industry, the anguish in the market. And I see the movement towards solving this problem in a different way. So you're spot on when you say it could be fleeting. The market analysis could be fleeting. The opportunity could be fleeting. So there is timing. You may be too early. You may be too late. Trying to find the just right time is tricky. But marketability and studying it deeply and understanding it is first and foremost. So, so here's an example. Can you imagine if you had just, in, just come up with a product that works in the self-service Froyo world now, right? You can't, that's dead. That's going to be a dead industry. It's going to have to be- Right, buffet-style foods. Right, it's all over, right? What's the second element? It's technical feasibility. And so technical feasibility means can you design, develop, and manufacture the product, and here's the kicker, at a cost low enough where everybody in the channel of distribution can make money. I've had plenty of clients walk in the door and they say, oh my gosh, look at this thing, it's great. And I've looked at the market and it's great. And I've looked at you know, hiring the best engineers. And I had one client who said, I've got a great team of engineers. They're from Detroit and they're really good engineers. And look at the great engineering job they've done on this product, Eric, what do you think? Can you help me commercialize it? And I said, well, how many $10 retail items have these engineers engineered because you're telling me that this product would retail for ten dollars they said well they're really good automotive engineers I said well like I said how many ten dollar items retail well I don't know I said so how many pounds of plastic are in this product that you're looking at because I'm thinking it's gonna be expensive so well, I don't know we never looked at the product cost I said well do me a favor go back to your engineers and ask them within the 3D CAD file in the computer, because you haven't made a prototype yet, how many pounds of plastic are in this thing? Well, it was three pounds of plastic in the system at a dollar and a half a pound, $4.50 a product cost, and it was supposed to retail for $10. So there was no money in it for the contract manufacturer, no money in it for her, the you know entrepreneur, no money in it for the retail establishment, really, not enough money in it for the retail establishment. And when I said to her, do you realize there's four and a half dollars of just material costs? She said, uh-oh. Right. <laughs> and she ended up killing the project because it wasn't that she could engineer it. It was that she couldn't engineer it at a target cost low enough where everybody in the channel could make the margins. So everybody to has to get paid. That's right. What a concept. Well, I worked at Mattel Toys for five years. And one of my jobs there was to look at a sketch from a designer and be able to answer that question. Can that toy in that sketch that's going to retail for $19.99, let's call it $20, so that means it has to be able to be produced for, let's call it $4. Is there $4 worth of material and labor in that product? Not $6, not $8, but maybe $4. And so I got pretty good at being able to do that. And that's an integral part of a new product's commercial success. That technical feasibility at a cost low enough where everybody can make money. 
And that's key number two. So is plastic the number one raw material used in most innovative products today? When the item has a reasonable quantity of being produced, so let's say, you know, 5,000 units or more a year, chances are it's going to be plastic, chances are it's going to be injection molded like the toy industry. And I've been designing injection molded plastic parts for about 42 years now. So I have a little experience at it. So I, I've seen um, parts in the industry I'm most familiar with, the copier business parts, and, and, and they're plastic items. So a lot of the parts that I would sell or be part of you know, procuring was that material. And I assume they're more precision made just because they're in a precise device. But there were plastic parts that weighed a, a tenth of an ounce that we would have to buy for 18 to $30 and then make sure the customer, we were basically keystoning, we were doubling the price on it. Sure. And, and that probably wasn't a mar enough markup because sometimes it would take us two hours to procure the part. So you can imagine two hours of man time, you know, man hours trying to figure out, source something. And then, you know, you make a 15 or $18 profit on it. It sounds like a lot of money for a piece of plastic, except for it took two hours of our time to just buy it, to find yeah. it. Exactly. And it always blew my mind how expensive those little widgets were. And that's- Well, so especially replacement part items, the margins are pretty fat. Right. So that's the second step. The second step is technical feasibility. And then, you know, moving on to the third step, it's protectability. So protectability is about creating a blanket of offerings to protect your venture. So usually that means intellectual property, which is patents. So it could be design patents. It could be uh, utility patents. It could be other things like uh, copyright. Uh, trademarks, maybe trade dress, trade secret. So that's all your intellectual property that can protect your venture. But also it could be other things like supply chain exclusivity. So I had one client who had a medical device and the sensor used in the medical device was being sold in the marine industry and in the automotive industry, but not being sold into the medical device industry. So I was working with him to lock up an exclusivity agreement to protect his product from being knocked off in the medical device industry. So that sensor supplier was not going to sell it to anybody else in the medical industry in exchange for an exclusivity arrangement and a number of units bought at a given price for a given amount of time. So that's the third key. So it's marketability, technical feasibility, and lastly, protectability so somebody doesn't knock off your business. Is that a utility patent that would protect a device or an, in, an invention like you're describing? Yeah, so a utility patent protects the functionality of the product, but not the aesthetic, the look. And a design patent doesn't protect the functionality, but only protects the aesthetic, the look, the ornate appearance of the product. And so there was that huge case between Samsung and Apple because of the iPhone being knocked off by Samsung. Right. And in, in the end, Apple won and there had to be the settlement because Samsung copied the aesthetic of that shape, I call it the chocolate bar type shape, of the phone that was really created by and protected by Apple. I think the icons and the shape of the corners also were part of that. So That's right. Square icon with rounded corners. That's exactly right. This is Small BizCast, and I'm interviewing Eric Rose of Pinnacle Product Innovation. We're discussing the three elements to success of new products. So this is all very fascinating, Eric. So can you tell us any stories of people that have come up with life-changing devices that you were involved with? Well, I've got a couple stories that are fun. One of my clients is the inventor of the George Foreman grill. 
Is it George Foreman? It is not. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> My client, That's Mike Bohm. <laughs> Michael Bohm, he's the original inventor's name's on the patent of the George Foreman grill. And Michael's gone public with this story, so it's, you know, no surprise. He was working for a uh, Chinese-based uh, manufacturer, and they were looking to expand out and get distribution on one of their kitchen appliances. And he had uh, designed it you know, tipped the grill forward and all the you know, grease fell out and he couldn't get anybody to take it on, Hamilton Beach and so forth and so on. And finally he realized, you know, he's a soft-spoken guy. He's a wonderful person. He's an incredible designer, but he's not a pitch man. So he realized that he really needed a pitch man in order to be able to get that out to somebody that would take it on and commercialize it because the uh, employer he worked for uh, wanted to commercialize the manufacturing and take over manufacturing. So he came across George Foreman and he saw at the time George Foreman was pitching Meineke mufflers. And he realized George was a great pitch man and he realized after some research, George ate two hamburgers before every fight. Oh, really? <laughs> so my client, Michael Bone, got a prototype, sent it to George Foreman's agent. The agent showed it to George. George loved it and the rest was history. So there was a whole big deal for an infomercial company and so forth and so on. But my client was an employee and so never really made much more money than a paycheck, which what would turned out to be a multi-billion dollar product. Wow. So I was involved with Michael to help him try to get a licensing deal on one of his new grills. And we worked hard to try and one company was interested and then backed out, but we were never able to help him commercialize his new product. So that's one of my fun stories. That's a very fun story. You said it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise, correct? Yeah, the George Foreman Grill in all of its iterations over its many, many years of life have generated multi-billions of dollars of revenue. At what point did you get involved with that project? So it wasn't George Foreman Grill I got involved with. It was the grill after that that my client came up with. My client had already built a prototype and he wanted to be able and filed patents pending and wanted to be able to commercialize through licensing. Mm -hmm that invention. And so with that particular case, I got involved after a prototype was developed and he really wanted to get it licensed. So my work was to find prospects who would license his intellectual property. And I still do that today just to a lesser extent. Um, I don't do that work on commission anymore. I have a market research assistant and we bring her in on a for paid fee basis to do the research to license intellectual property like the doctor I was telling you about that had the, the pulmonologist who had a medical device with a sensor in it, we were brought in on a fee-for-service basis to be able to find prospective licensees for that uh, medical device because the doctor had a day job, he was a doctor, and he didn't want to be in the manufacturing and commercialization business. He wanted to license it. When you were talking earlier about the person that had the life-changing device, that was my thought also is, boy, it'd be really nice to pair him up with someone that could just take the ball and run with it. It's just I tried... I know. I got, I got it. I'm, I'm going to be like a dog with a bone on that one because I want to, I'm so curious about it. So yeah, I, want to, yeah, yeah. I want to warn you, I might bring it up a time or two more. Well, I have another story that I love telling. Okay. Uh, there's a company in Camarillo called Interlink Electronics. I've I was working that. with them. They are a manufacturer of remote controls for digital projectors, slide forward, slide back. And when I started working with them, I asked them who their customers were. And they said, well, their customers are manufacturers of digital projectors for um, you know, people who are out there presenting. 
And I said, well, you know, yes, you sell direct to digital projector manufacturers, but the truth of the matter is that sales executive, marketing executive, road warrior, keynote speaker, teacher, trainer, the person that has that remote control in their hand, that's really the end user. And if we're looking to grow your business, we want to get to that end user and do the market research around the end user's anguish to figure out what other products you might want to put into that sales channel that could generate revenue you hadn't seen in the past. And so the CEO was open to that. So I ended up doing a focus group with the National Speakers Association, a trade group of professional speakers and presenters and trainers. And out of a dozen people in the room at the trade show, there was about 80% of the folks that said, while they had a number of great ideas, they really wanted a portable PA that they could control their own destiny. And that public address system, that PA, would be something that would fold up small like a laptop, could fit in the overhead compartment of an airplane, could come with a little lapel mic, and sell for under $1,000. And if the company I was working with could deliver that product to the market, they would buy it immediately. And so I went back to the CEO, and the CEO said, but we don't know how to do portable PA technology. And I said, you don't need to. I'll find you a strategic partner. So in the end, I was able to find a strategic partner in Chicago who did the design, the development, and manufacturing in their China factory of this ultra-portable PA known as GoSpeak. You can find it online. Uh -huh. And that product was shipped in finished goods from Asia on pallets to the warehouse in Camarillo. And in the end, it was sold through the exact same sales force, the exact same dealer network, and generated a new multi-million dollar revenue stream for this company in Camarillo that never even thought of getting into this adjacent market. The product's still in market 13 years later, generating revenue in its third iteration of design. That's exciting. And I assume that you got paid long ago and there's, there's no more revenue stream for you, correct? I'm done and gone, yes. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Over the many years I've worked at Mercury Document Imaging, we've been solving business problems using technology, and now we have this new reality. Employees are working from home, and companies are trying to stay relevant and efficient and have accountability for their employees while doing so. The big problem is that the cyber criminals are working from home too, and they have been doing this longer and know what they're doing and know what vulnerabilities you've created by kind of throwing this together quickly. So now that it looks like we're gonna be here for a while, it's time to think about this. I want you to reach out to my company. We'll either help you or refer you to a partner that can help you, depending on what the vulnerability is. But the first thing to do is start with an assessment, make sure that you're protected, and then find the weak link. So please call us, 818-782-1221. My extension is 25913. But call anybody at the office. We're all happy to help you, and we want to make sure that we don't have any more problems than we already have. Thanks. So have you ever had ideas yourself that you've brought to market? Yes, sure. Uh, lots of ideas. Uh, some I've pitched to, you know, VCs and so forth. Uh, some of, you know, you work through the tough, tough challenges of the market research. Right. And you say, you know what? As great of an idea as this is, I had one in the uh, fire suppression industry, residential fire suppression. Uh, I had one in the uh, outdoor landscaping gardening industry. It just wouldn't work. The business model wouldn't work. And then one of them that I have, you can find at turbostir.com. It's a kitchen appliance, and I've been in discussions with some prospective licensees to commercialize that invention through licensing. What so it, 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 it stirs uh, better 
than a spatula and cleans easier than a whisk. It's a three-bladed <laughs> spatula. Your That's your yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find it at turbostir.com. Okay. Patents are granted, and it's available for licensing. Right. And so, did you do? You did market research on that. I'm assuming you treat you, a lot of market research. Over 90% of the people, and I probably interviewed almost 100 people. Um, of over 90% of all people I interviewed, when I asked them the number one problem with a whisk, what would you say? Cleaning it after you're done using it. There you go. Yeah. So you fit into that 90% category, and my invention solves that cleaning problem. Well, there you go. The, the thing is, my, my solution is probably just not to use one. Well, because although <laughs> how many people really make a meringue right. yeah, and my... need a whisk? Exactly. But if you're scrambling eggs or stirring stew or soup or lemonade or, you know, mixing tuna salad or chicken salad or making, uh, you know, ground beef in a spaghetti sauce, all of this, you know, the invention is incredible for that. And all my research has shown people love it for that. Um, but you don't need a whisk. Can you give any advice to aspiring inventors out there or people that just ha are within their industry and are trying to solve a problem that they are facing themselves? Sure. And this advice is relevant whether you're a sole proprietor inventor or you're actually a small business. And I work with a lot of small businesses. I, I say between 5 and $50 million in annual revenue, manufacturing companies that want to grow beyond their core business. So they're a small business and they want to maybe look at their assets, whether it's sales and marketing professional, or it could be plant and equipment, and they want to think beyond where they are today. And I just encourage them to do the market research. So for example, there's one small business, they're in the wire cloth industry, and I could imagine where they would leverage that wire cloth business for like industrial filters into what's going on in the world today. Well. If you look at COVID, what are the industries that have skyrocketed? One of them is gardening. And, what, and I'm a gardener. And what's one of the big problems in gardening? Keeping the keeping, pests out. Keeping the pests out. Keeping right. the critters out. Right. Squirrels and deer and, you know, bunny rabbits and all of that. So how do you do that? You do that with wire cloth. But this particular company isn't in that industry today. But perhaps, you know, I can convince them to do so. And, you know, I could see where maybe the product's a little priced a little differently, featured a little differently. Maybe it comes with a frame around, you know, that kind of thing. All of this needs market research. Right. I, so I'd whether be, you're a sole I'd proprietor be, or a small business. Yeah. Well, tell them I'll be a customer. I've got a fish pond that I've got herons that like to hunt my, my fish. And I'm looking for well, there you go. better solutions every day. So uh, maybe I'll talk to you offline about getting six feet of it and giving it a shot. There you go. There you go. So sole proprietor right. or small business. It's about thinking differently. It's about leveraging the assets you have. And the assets may be people, plant and equipment, sales force, dealer channel, technical expertise, intellectual property. Maybe you've got some patents that you haven't licensed or licensed out or leveraged in some way. You know, thinking creatively, thinking innovatively and doing the research to figure out how you can monetize uh, those assets. How many people come to you with an idea that have all the skills they need to bring it to market? Or do you always have to partner with somebody that knows manufacturing, knows distribution, knows all the, you know, the financial side? I can't imagine the average Joe coming up with a new item, being able to bring it all the way to market. Very rarely. I mean, there are some companies, small businesses that have technical expertise, have R&D staffs, but they may bring me in because their product innovation process the business process of their small business needs to be tweaked a little bit. 
because maybe they don't have quite the ability in their product management department to identify the opportunity or to filter the opportunities or to maybe prioritize the feature set from the market research to figure out which features are most important for the market so their R&D folks can prioritize which ones to work on. But they may have some technical staff, they may have some marketing staff, they certainly would have some plants and equipment, they have the sales force, but they may not have the business process down quite the way they want. And so they'll call me in to be their small business consultant to help them be more efficient at the way they innovate new products for new revenue. I would assume that people sometimes find uses for products they didn't expect to have and then remanufacture them as that. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, there was this widget for fidgety people. It was called a spinner. And you just, whoever came up with that, I'm sure he was someone like me who's very kinetic and likes to touch things. And he probably was picking up some part made for some other item that he had, maybe a bicycle part or something. Sure. And just started spinning it and realized that people like to do that. And he probably just repurposed an invention. That said, the amount of courage it would take to, to say, okay, I'm going to manufacture this, I'm going to design it, manufacture it, distribute it solely for the purpose of fidgeting with this stupid little spinner thing. Yes. And they were a fad for what, 18 months, two years, maybe at the most? Sure. Was that a money-making enterprise? Mm -hmm. Who knows? But A novelty for sure. The courage it takes to put those types of products out is amazing. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure it was just repurposed from something else. Well, I'll tell you one more repurposing story. A number of years ago, probably 25, 30 years ago, plastic patio furniture just started to hit the market. You mean and like the plastic stackable resin furniture? Yes, yes, exactly right. The retail price of those chairs were selling for around $12 or $14. And I looked at those chairs and I was working for a durable medical equipment company that was based out of Simi Valley at the time. And I looked at the bedside commodes for the geriatric and disabled and we were manufacturing them with product cost of 22 to 25 dollars wow and i went to my boss and i said look these plastic patio chairs are retailing for 12 to 14 dollars so i think if we take a plastic patio chair and cut a hole in the middle and put a bucket underneath it we ought to be able to make it for you know maybe 12 dollars and be able to sell it for 20 or $40 instead of, you know, now we're making them for 20 to $24 and selling them for $50 and they retail for $100, you know. So he said, all right, well, what would it take? And I said, well, honestly, it would probably take about a half a million dollars in R&D and tooling. He goes, well, let me put the proposal together. And he went to corporate headquarters and he got the money. And in the end, we created a patented stackable patio furniture type style chair right. with a hole in the middle with a bucket underneath it and because it nested we started selling six in a UPS shippable carton instead of two because it was steam cleanable we went and opened up the rental market right right and now all of a sudden because we got demand internationally for emergency preparedness we started selling like I think it was 14 of them on a pallet going to Abu Dhabi and all over the world <laughs> just because I said, wouldn't it be cool if we could sell these commodes, you know, just like a plastic patio chair with a hole in the middle. That's so fascinating. I love it. Well, how did you go from working for corporate America to opening your own firm? It was about 10 years ago. Unfortunately, my wife passed away and I needed to be able to be home to take care of my son. 
And the question was, how was I going to do that? And I had toyed with being in my own business a number of times since 1980 when I launched my business. And I'd been doing freelance work on and off over the years, moonlighting and so forth and so on. And finally I said, it's time. It's time to go out on my own. I had not only my engineering degree, I had my MBA. I was a certified new product development professional. I've been certified since 2008. I've been doing some writing and publishing and a lot of public speaking. And I was starting to get a following, if you will. And so I went to my boss and the company I was working for, a PPE company in Culver City, they were incredibly kind and generous and compassionate. And they said to me, yes, Eric, you know, we understand. We'd like you to stay on a little bit longer than maybe you want to. And they worked out a deal with me to have a declining involvement with them. That's perfect. A soft landing, a retainer into the next year. Um, and just were just, like I said, incredibly compassionate. And that soft landing allowed me then to open up my own consulting business and then business took off after that. Wow, that's a great story. I can only imagine how daunting it is to open a practice, open a consulting business when you're going through some, such a tough time and trying to be so yes. strong for your son. And so what a great relationship you must have had with the folks at the PPE company. Are they, are they still in business? They are. And of course, as you might imagine, they're pretty busy with COVID nowadays. Right. Do they still do the work that you did in-house or are they uh, your client? How does? Yeah, in fact, they ended up hiring an engineer that used to work for me. Uh-huh to take my place after a period of time. Right. Great guy, great guy. Right. So, you know, they're in good hands. And of course with COVID, I'm sure they're selling everything that their machinery can produce. It's a great example of how you can be in business and you have a heart and having the heart really makes you a better business. I, I've always rejected that idea that business is business and personal is separate. I've always rejected that idea. All my years in business, you realize that life happens. Yes. You know, things in life happens and it disrupts people. And we're with the people we work with, whether they're our employers or our coworkers or colleagues, we're with them a majority of our waking hours a day. You yes. have to have heart. You can't just be about watching the clock and watching the productivity and watching, you know, the, the structured day can't be all about 150 phone calls to a sales staff before noon. There has to be right. heart involved. And I think that gets lost a little bit from people that are either in the cheap seats or looking from far away or the people that are so wrapped up in, in fear and panic of losing what they have, that they forget that everybody that is part of the business has a personal life and a personal story. And uh, um, so I, I would I, encourage your, your listeners and small business owners to think about, is there a win-win situation? And, and honestly, the win-win situation for me was, I originally was just thinking about a six weeks notice and six weeks really because there was a major project going on, really probably wasn't enough. And the win-win was I would stay on longer, but on a declining schedule and work more from home back before it was in vogue, you know, and, you know, and then have that retainer into the next year. So I was available in case the balls were getting dropped for any reason. And so that was fine, but I could do it from home. And so they knew they had that safety cushion because I was available. And then yet I could do that work from home and be there for my son. And being the employee and offering a compromise to the business owner was a good thing for them and a good thing for me. And them compromising and offering me the retainer into the next year so that they had a cushion and I had a cushion was a win-win. 
And so thinking outside the box that way, uh, especially for small business owners, I highly encourage. Yeah, I would also say I've always managed for stability also. And so it's a very, if you're too rigid in your ways, it's very hard to be stable when people undergo change. So if your goal is keeping a stable workforce, we all know how expensive it is to recruit, train, and bring people up to speed in the workforce. If, you're, if your goal is to be stable, then you have to add flexibility to your methodology. Otherwise, you're going to sacrifice stability because you're too rigid when yes. someone needs a special favor or something on that level. As Especially I, nowadays, right? Yeah, I think now is the biggest lesson of that. I think we've all, we've all learned that wholesale. That yes. The flexibility is really important. I think in terms of hiring people, you, it's really going to be hard to hire people to work specific hours so we can fo- focus on the results, not necessarily the amount of time they spend working, but the results. I have a, yep. I have a friend who's a... a a managing uh, partner of a pretty good size accounting practice, and they're moving to a four day a week schedule, um, not a 410. So it's four eight hour days a week. They're going to be Monday, Tuesday on, Wednesday off, Thursday, Friday on, weekend off, and repeat. And they've done a lot, quite a bit of research, and they, they believe they're going to be more productive. So I, 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 think, I think it's an apt experiment. I, I'll be curious to see how it works out, but I think he's probably right on because people tend to. They got to get the job done in the amount of time they have to do it, and they'll probably get it done. And it's a better quality of life when you get two days on and a few days off. So I'm really proud of him for taking the leap because it's definitely a leap. So but, you could see that innovation is key to business success nowadays, whether it's in new products or your business process. Yes. So uh, do you, do you remember any of the lessons you learned from being an employee to being an employer? I have purposefully worked not to be an employer. Okay. Although I did hire my son recently. Uh, to work part-time for me. And I have had part-time, I will sell contract. Can I interrupt employees. you for a second? So when you hired your son, did you give him a broken toaster and tell him to... <laughs> I think I gave him a broken hard drive <laughs> because he has a computer science degree. <laughs> okay, got it. All right, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, that's funny. I learned many years ago from one of my bosses, play to people's sweet spots. Interesting. So if you're really trying to shove somebody who's a round peg in a square hole, it's not good for them and it's not good for the business. Right. So being able to really work with your people and understanding what they do well and understanding what they don't do well and trying to shuffle all the work around so that you're really playing to people's sweet spots and then you're filling in where work isn't getting done because you don't have anybody in those sweet spots that you need work to be done. And you could fill in with employees. You could fill in with outside contractors. You could fill in with separate legal entities that are companies that you hire, whatever it takes to get the work done. But it's really important to play to people's sweet spots, make sure they love what they do, because otherwise it's just not productive. And if if they can't even admit it to their own themselves that they're not doing what they love to do, then it's your job as the boss to figure that out and put them into those sweet spots regardless. Yeah, I think hiring for fundamental personality traits is what I typically do. So I want a nice nice person who's going to come up with solutions, not identify problems, but come up with solutions when they see obstacles. That's not something you can really teach somebody. So No, I will tell you that I learned um, about a consulting company that's based here in Southern California. I can talk to you about it offline they will do a personality assessment to be able to help to really identify the innate 
interest capability of an individual and map that against the need in the organization and then with you the boss be able to decide you know how is your portfolio of staff against your needs and then make some decisions strategically about who you want to bring on and I got to the point after I worked with them hiring a few people a few engineers I wouldn't hire an engineer for a staff anymore without using them first that's interesting. I would like to talk to you about that offline. Maybe we can get them on the show. I think you should. <laughs> <laughs> if I have an invention, how do I get a hold of you? Well, there's a couple ways to reach out to me. First of all, I run the largest inventors meetup group in Los Angeles called Inventors Mastermind SoCal Meetup. If you search Inventors Mastermind in Meetup, you should be able to find me. And the Meetup is free to join. Now it's Zoom. Just finished one last week on manufacturing materials and processes. But we have talks on patent attorneys and patents and prototyping and commercializing your invention and pitching and licensing and all those kind of talks. We have those every couple months. They're uh, co-hosted often with 818 Startups, another great group in the area. Um, you can find me at ericpaulrose.com. That's E-R-I-C-P-A-U-L-R-O-S-E.com. Um, and then you can follow me on LinkedIn. You can search for me as Eric Paul Rose on LinkedIn. Okay, well, I have a feeling your phone is going to ring and your email is going to explode it after this because everybody I talk to has great ideas. Sure, it be my pleasure to help. People, I usually uh, have an introductory complimentary call. We go under then a non-disclosure agreement, and then I have my clients fill out a client intake form which requires them to think about the marketability, technical feasibility, and protectability of their new product. Uh, and then we see if I can help them. This has been a great talk. I really appreciate it. I hope um, the listeners got a lot out of it. And I, I can tell you I did. So thank you very much, Eric. And thank you for having me, Joel. My pleasure. Small BizCast drops every other Monday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers. And send your feedback to jv at smallbizcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsor, Mercury Document Imaging. We couldn't do this without you. And of course, thanks to my producer and my son, Charlie Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do without him either. Thank you very much for listening. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. <laughs>